Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, professional photographer Roger Vlaitos talks about nature writer Richard Jeffries, who coined the phrase "spirit country" for the west of England countryside, that inspired him and many followers. This year is the 160th anniversary of the writer's birth, and this lecture celebrates the writer's enduring reputation, as well as the countryside and the spirit of the place he wrote about. Thank you very much. Can everybody hear me? Thank you for coming.、Um, I wondered how many people here have heard of Richard Jefferies or read him. Oh, good. We're very civilized. The rest of you, I hope, will find your appetites wet, wetted.、Um, this is the this is the man. And as I, as we're going to, I call the, the lecture "Spirit Country" because that's what he particularly referred to the downs that he loved and wrote about all of his life, really. And it's this sense of spirit of place that I particularly. Find attractive about him, and I think many people do. And the people I will be showing you felt that as well. This genius loci—it's—it's appealed to thousands of of people. Even though Jeffries, I have to say, is in probably the third division of our literary canon, you won't find him on many syllabuses in English departments. But still, he has a firm following.、Um, Anyhow, this is just a look at a few of the people who were inspired by him. He still read.、Um, in 2005, he run the, won the Guardian、uh, Readers' Poll for the best classic nature writer. This is the this is the man. And as I, as we're going to, I call the, the lecture "Spirit Country" because that's what he particularly referred to the downs that he loved. And wrote about all of his life, really, and it's this sense of spirit of place that I particularly find attractive about him, and I think many people do. And the people I will be showing you felt that as well. This genius loci—it's—it's appealed to thousands of of people. Even though Jeffries, I have to say, is in probably the third division of our literary canon. You won't find him on many syllabuses in English departments, but still, he has a firm following.、Um, anyhow, this is just a look at a few of the people who were inspired by him. He still read.、Um, in 2005, he won the, won the Guardian、uh, Readers' Poll for the best classic nature writer. And just to prove. About how true his eye is. These are some hares I shot not long ago、um, on Lidington Hill, which is a place beloved of Jeffreys. And I just like to go through what he writes.、Um, what he says is, and we can see this illustrated from left to right. When startled by a passerby, the hare, unless there is a dog, goes off at a leisurely fashion, doubtless feeling quite safe in the length of his legs. And after a hundred yards or so, sits on his haunches and nonchalantly watches the intruder. Now, in some of his books,、um, Jeffries was a very poor student. He read widely. He read exactly what he wanted to do. His teachers describe him as moony and uncooperative. 
But one person he did learn from was the local gamekeeper and the poacher. And he will, his books are full of little, little things which you might not believe, but actually work. He says things like, if you come into a field, as you will at this time of the year, you, you may see up to ten hares in a field, sometimes five. But if you don't eyeball them, if you pretend that you don't see them, they will pretend they don't see you. <laughs> and you can walk right past them. And he says he's seen poachers and gamekeepers do this. Walk right past them and then suddenly reach over and pick one up by the ears. Now, I haven't been able to do that, but I did actually, was flying a kite for, some, for a child once, and fell down in a field with three hairs in it, and I walked around, ignoring the hairs, gathering up the kite's tail. And when I looked at them, they were, they were still there, and then they just went off. So I, mean, I think that we can learn quite a lot from Jeffries, which you just simply wouldn't believe. He is basically four kinds of writer, and he appeals to different sorts of people. He's an observer of nature. He was a campaigner, campaigner for social reform in rural eras. He's a romantic novelist, not a very successful one, more successful as a writer of children's books. We'll get into that later. And he's also a free-thinking, irreligious mystic. He did not believe in the church. He did not believe in God, although he believed in pantheism, a sort of seeing God and feeling God everywhere you looked, waiting for the casual reply. But he did not believe in formalized religions. And in fact, it's quite possible, it seems that in order to get him buried in the churchyard, his wife pretended that he had a deathbed conversion. Um, he's rather like W.C. Fields. On his deathbed, somebody said to him, what are you doing reading the Bible? And he said, I'm just looking for a loophole. <laughs> I'm going to read from him, if you don't mind. Um, this is a sample of On the Downs. From the blue... Hill lines from the dark copses on the ridges, the shadows in the coombs, comes an influence which forces the heart to lift itself. It is the sense of a wider existence, wider and higher, a feeling of rising to a nobler existence, or being, rather. And we see in that style of writing a certain romanticism that we can probably find very clearly, you can see echoes of it in, in Wordsworth, certainly Tintin Abbey, which was, I, I believe, published in 1797, so you know, before he was born. And I'll just quote you from Tintin Abbey. A presence that disturbs me with the joy of elevated thoughts, a sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused, whose dwelling is the light of the setting suns and the round ocean and the living air and the blue sky and in the mind of man. This is a sort of theme that he picked up as a child. He seemed to have absorbed it. He only lived for 39 years, but his reputation grew by leaps and bounds after his death. And I think Betjeman put it wonderfully in a 1938 BBC West broadcast. Um, Richard Jeffries was considered a bit loopy by his peers, but good writers always are. It's only the bestsellers who are considered sane. The hamlet in which he lived was set in a country which Jeffreys described in the best nature books we have in the language. And that's quite an accolade coming from a man who later became poet laureate. Okay, um, I'm just going to go back. In God Bless, 
the burgers of Swindon. Now, Swindon isn't the most illustrious and beautiful of towns. I think it was Humphrey Littleton, a couple of years before he died, said, what, what has Swindon and the moon got in common? Any, t- any answer? No atmosphere. <laughs> but I think if you know Jeffries and you know that he grew up on the edge of Swindon and sweep and roamed, made it his own, this little bit of what some people, writers have called Jeffries country, going up onto the downs and then beyond. He was an indefatigable walker, would walk 30 miles, 40 miles in a day. Then you'll, you'll get a sense of, of that it does have an atmosphere. It is spirit country. It is kind of haunted in the nicest possible way. And the good burghers of Swindon erected that stone in 1939, Three tons of it. They, they dragged it, I believe, 12 miles. And you get views down onto the places he wrote about from there. Unfortunately, some of my compatriots have a pension um, for shooting signs. If you've been to America in a rural situation and you see a sign, you will generally find that some redneck has filled it full of lead. And some American soldiers up on Liddington Hill, there was a second monument, used it for target practice. Um, I have to say that one of my particular interest in Jeffries came out of the same period. In 1942, my father was, was uh, over here uh, preparing for D-Day, and he was stranded in Swindon for, I think, eight hours. Got rather bored with the pubs and things, somebody invited him into their house for tea and scones and then took him up to the Downs. And as a boy from um, Brooklyn, New York, who'd barely seen a tree, um, he was captivated. And then they gave him a copy of a book that Jeffries had written up there called The Story of My Heart. My father took that book with him throughout D-Day when he went back and forth 17 times on, on transports. And he kept that book with him for the rest of his life. And um, that's how I found it, on my father's shelves. And my father, who, as I say, was a city boy, went on to become a pre- professor of plant physiology, thanks to, I think, Jeffrey's nature writing and Jeffrey's spirit. Anyhow, Jeffrey's, um, not everybody loves him. Recently, his grave near Worthing was vandalized. On the other side of this monument on Birder Up Down, near Swindon, uh, is some words, or words from his first fan and follower, a man called the, um, Alfred Williams, who was known as the, forge, the Hammerman poet. He was a working man in the railway works. And he wrote these astonishing poems, really. And so we see here, still to find and still to follow, joy in every field and hollow, company in solitude. Very much in the Jeffrey's romantic vein. On that monument, there are these extraordinary words. It is eternity now. I'm in the midst of it. It's all about me in the sunshine. Rather mystical. Rather beautiful. It comes particularly because Jeffrey's, this moony loner, man who loves solitude, was up on the downs one day and lay down on a 4,000-year-old burial mound and had what you might call a transcendental flash, a moment of cosmic consciousness. Just like Wordsworth in Tintern Abbey, 
He sees himself traveling around the world. He sees the shores. He's hovering above it all. And he sees the man who's buried below him. And he has this moment, this flash of realization, and he says, time doesn't exist. And it becomes a feeling that he has through the rest of his life. Now, you may think he was schizophrenic and mad, but one of the things I can assure you is that he wrote beautifully. (laughs) So let's bear with it. Now, there are some people, this is what I would call his mystical side. Some people just don't get that. They don't go with it at all. Other people think it's the most profound thing that they've read. And you will see echoes of this in Buddhism and Hinduism and various philosophies. It also echoes someone who Jeffreys read, the romantic poet and um, artist William Blake, um, to see a world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wildflower, hold infinity, infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. But I think somebody who gives us a picture of the world in which he was growing up, particularly as a follower of Blake, someone who actually trod, and, they, and Jeffries went out of his way to go to Palmer country and eventually lived there. Um, he had the same feeling for the land there. And this is Samuel Palmer. And one of his tiny etchings, they're generally only about this big, about less, less than a postcard, but they're very evocative. And, and once... Um, and, and they're also quintessentially English. There's nothing quite like them anywhere else. This is Palmer's, another way, point where they connect. Palmer painting um, Donetti's Comet of 1858 over Cheddar Gorge. And Jeffreys, as a 10-year-old boy, sees the same comet while lying on the grass in his garden and says, a comet whose immense but thin and wispy, misty tail spanned the sky like a thicker milky way with stars shining through it. His teachers and contemporaries describe him as a moody, sensitive, and solitary boy, work-shy about the farm, a bit of a daydreamer. Looking around the room, I can see that some of you were the same. One of his, somebody he knew fairly well was a Victorian artist. Um, we don't know, they didn't actually spend that much time together, but he, this, this man, um, J.W. North from Somerset, uh, helped his wife a lot after Jeffreys died. Um, and so we see a kind of feeling for the countryside in that, in that moment, the 1880s. But when Richard Maybe, the nature writer, probably our best nature writer today, chose an anthology of Jeffrey's writing about agricultural laborers, this was what he, what he chose for the cover. And I think it kind of sums up that strain of writing about agricultural um, matters. He had an enormous impact on a young poet called Edward Thomas, who wrote his second biography, Richard Jeffries' Life and Work. Actually, there have been six biographies of Jeffries, all of them, I have to say, imperfect. Um, there are, there were, I, I believe there are ten notebooks by Richard Jeffries, which are really quite extraordinary, these notebooks, but none of the biographers have had access to more than four of those. And you'll be happy to hear that the other six reside in a vault in the University of Texas. 
Maybe you're not happy to hear that, but somebody's got them. It's just a quote from, from um, Edward Thomas. His was the pure downland. The breasted hills curved under the influence of a great melody. It is a beautiful, quiet, renowned, and visibly ancient land. The downs in this country of Richard Jeffreys are amongst the highest, most spacious, and most divinely carved in rolling ridge and hollowed flank. Jeffreys often thought of the sea upon these hills. The eye expects it. There is something oceanic in their magnitude, their solitude. They are never abrupt, but flowing on and on make a type of infinity. But not everybody saw this. Um, Some of you will know of the Reverend um, Gilpin of Bath, William Gilpin, who invented the word picturesque. Um, He described this area as one of the most dreary landscapes imaginable. All one sees are tumuli and scattered stones. And he advised any local landowner he could meet to plant eye catchers, plant copses of trees on on the hills, which actually we have today. And we see it continually. Somebody else who went there was um, William Cobbett in his rural rides, and he describes it as chalk and cheese, because you've got the chalky uplands, which are bare, and as far as Cobbett was concerned, of absolutely no use to anybody, and then the dairy land, the rich dairy land below, which produced cheese. But Thomas Hardy, another romantic, found it partly real, partly dream. And he set a story there at one of these tumuli that um, Gilpin was so scathing about. This is the Devil's Den at Clatford, which Hardy calls the Devil's Door. And he sets it on the Marlbury Downs, not the Marlborough Downs. And it's a very racy tale of, of sex in the moonlight, boys and girls. Um, I recommend that you have a, a dip into it if you can find it. Um, Jeffrey's early articles, which he sent, um, he just sent them to the editor of the Times and was absolutely astonished to find that they printed them and asked for more. They were all about agricultural matters and about the plight of agricultural workers, and they have names such as Hodge and his masters. Hodge was a generic name given to any laborer on a farm. They were just all called Hodge, like Welshmen are called Taffy. Um, and the squire in the land. He's actually quite good about the balance of, of you know, great estate, great estate, seeing that you know, if we didn't have them, we would lose, there would be an awful lot of trades and jobs that would go. And he was to be proof prophetic because after the First World War, um, there was a famine of jobs in, in rural life. The other social reformer who latched on to Jeffrey's this strand of Jeffrey's writing was W.H. Hudson. Has anybody heard of him? Green Mansions? Great, you know, a great read. Um, I don't know how much he's read these days, but he set his shepherd's life up there on the Wiltshire Downs in Jeffrey's country and helped to foster a back-to-nature movement. And he had such an affinity with, with Jeffrey's that they're both buried in the same graveyard in Sussex. Um, Charles Hamilton Sorley, there were, there were a number of masters at Marlborough College who read 
Jeff, or got the boys to read Jeffreys, and one of the boys who read him was this Charles Hamilton Sorley, who unfortunately died at the age of 20 in, on the Somme. And, but he would read Jeffreys in the trenches to rekindle this sense of tranquility. And this is just a sample of it. I, who have walked along her downs and dreams, and known her tenderness and felt her might, and sometimes by her meadows and her streams, have drunk deep-storied secrets of delight. It's a bit to dumb to dumb, but um, wonderful feeling throughout Sorley's work. Some of you may have heard of Frank Bridge because of Benjamin Britten, who um, was his pupil and wrote a marvelous piece of music dedicated to him. Um, And Bridge was a pacifist and during the First World War chose two pieces of Jeffrey's writing to use as what he called superscripts, which would be read out and then the music would come. It would be a tone poem based on these. You can still buy recordings of them. Um, I'll just quote the first from the open air. Those thoughts and feelings which are not sharply defined, but have a haze of distance and beauty about them, are always the dearest. How beautiful a delight to make the world joyous. The song should never be silent, the dance never still. The laugh should sound like water which runs forever. He also, rather surprisingly, affected um, W.H. Davis, the super tramp poet. Um, he wrote memoirs of a super tramp. He was a Welshman who became a tramp in America, had a train accident and lost a leg, came back and wrote, what is this life so full of care that we have not time to stop and stare? As well as other best-selling poems of the period, Georgian period, and he, throughout his life, which went on into the 70s, used to take these, one, used to hobble one-legged through what he called Jeffrey's country, on little pilgrimages. They obviously had an enormous effect on these people. And then we have Betjeman, another Marlborough schoolboy, as you probably know. And um, in spite of being a devout Catholic, um, Christian, Betjeman echoes that feeling of Jeffrey's that, I mean, this is Betjeman's own words, which I find rather surprising. These towns are pagan. Those villages below me are pagan. Christianity here is a matter of indifference. Its roots are shallow. Betjeman got, as some of you may know, he had this wonderful ability to get other creative people together and started something which were extraordinary episode in English publishing, really, the, the Shell Guides, the Shell County Guides, in which he got his friends, and the more idiosyncratic, the better. If they were a bit quirky, fantastic, um, to write and illustrate these guides. And, in, and he gets Robert Byron, who was considered to be one of the most waspish, waspish men around. He would fight you or um, argue with you, a red-haired gentleman, uh, and was a, a great scholar in, in all sorts of ways, but he got him to come to Wiltshire. And I think it's interesting to see what, Bet- what he says, because it echoes Thomas, uh, Edward Thomas, and also Jeffreys. He says, The outstanding beauty of the country is the landscape of the uplands, an ocean suddenly frozen with an air of mystery. 
And then he says, Swindon, a place whose existence is regretted by seekers after beauty. <laughs> Avebury is a ghost. And the piece de resistance, I think, is South Wiltshire is away with the fairies. <laughs> In the same year, E.F. Shepherd, um, who some of you will know from the Winnie the Pooh illustrations, came to illustrate Bevis, the story of a boy. It was one of his favorite childhood books, and he wanted to have a crack at it. And he came to the area to actually do the drawings in situ, to pick up on the spirit of place. And they are still astonished. I mean, they're very deft, lovely um, pen and ink work. That's the old house at Coat Farm. Um, If you were to go there today, you will find that this little path would take you to a Texaco service station. And the rather unlovely Sun Inn takes up this space. Um, behind is Coat Water, a reservoir. Um, there are f- flashes. I mean, there's an old orchard, mo- most of it planted by his father. There are, there are, there are certain, certain aspects of it which are, uh, still have that spirit. But it's on a very busy road into Swindon. But scenes like this around the back are exactly the same. That window is there, the doorway is there, the brick path. And there are curious little scenes in Bevis, the story of the boy, which of course is autobiographical, which he never really let go for the rest of his life. He went back to them again and again and again. One of them is lying on his back looking at the stars. We'll get into that later. You'll see it See it again. Um, In 1933, the the war artist, Paul Nash, who was suffering both with what we might call shell shock or post-traumatic stress syndrome, syndrome, as well as he was tubercular, um, came to Wiltshire, and he came particularly to visit some of the places that he knew were associated with Jeffries. He had an affinity with Jeffries, read him a lot because he knew that Jeffries had died of of TB. But it wasn't simply that. It was this connection, this being able to, this oneness with nature that he wanted, he needed to to make himself sane, to heal himself. And what he wrote to John Piper at the time was, if anything will preserve my interest in landscape from a painter's point of view, it will be this country. And he came back again and again over the next 10 years, until the end of his life, really. Um, He painted this particular copse near Liddington Hill. Rather fanciful background, but it's it's called the Jeffreys Copse by many people. And during his surrealist stage, he'd been to Paris, Nash. He'd met André Breton, who'd informed him that if he was a real surrealist, he would banish the word like from his vocabulary. So that when he looked on a stone and thought it was like a sentinel, it wasn't like it. It was a sentinel. This was the surrealist credo. And Nash, you'll find that his writing is is full of this, um, um, urging the imagination to life. The great stones in their wild state, wonderful and disquieting, golden liking, enhancing their strange forms and mystical significance. And a nest of wild stones 
in one of the remotest parts of the Downs that he went back to continually. This is a, it was subtitled The Land of Richard Jefferies. And being the surrealist and the modernist that he was, when he went to photograph something like a white horse, he made it semi-abstract. Rather interesting. But Betjeman published these in the Shell Guide. Betjeman was quite a, um, an icebreaker in his way. Somebody who is perhaps more conventional um, was a designer for Wedgwood called Eric Revilius. Extraordinary painter and graphic designer. Um, he did coronation mugs and things like that. Um, and, but, what, but his heart was in the Chalklands. He had a particular feel for it, both in Sussex, on the Sussex Downs, and, and here. And he came specifically because he wanted to do a book on chalk figures. But what he found was that as the war had started, and he did these on his own time, he was had just been made an official war artist. He did them, when he got to, to, went looking for the chalk figures, he found they'd all been covered with turf because they, they were afraid that they would be used as landmarks for the, for the bombers. So he had to cease that project, and he went on to just drawing, and this is Knapp Hill um, in Jeffrey's, in, in, very much in Jeffrey's country, and this is just below Liddington Hill. And this strange technique you see is um, rather rather wonderful dry technique. Um, you leave, he would he would put gum arabic across the page in grids in white lines and then paint over it to get a sort of scratchy feel. Do we like it? Good. Unfortunately, he went missing in action in Norway. Um, on his own volition, he offered to go along. They, they were short of a war artist. He went off in a Wellington and never came back. His brother-in-law, Rex Whistler, was known by... Um, Evelyn Wall called him one of the bright young things, an extraordinary artist. Um, you, some of you may know his work from murals in Plathnewith in Anglesey, where he left, which he left unfinished, but as he left it unfinished, he, he, left, he always smoked a pipe, Rex, and so he left a smoking pipe on the mantelpiece, having painted it. It's trompe l'oeil there. And if you go into the Tate Gallery, Tate Britain, um, rather good restaurant, which some of you might be able to afford, um, he painted everything in there. R- rather beautiful. And this is a place where he... Met and this was Edith Oliver. Um, was this extraordinary woman, who was the daughter of uh, the dean of, of Salisbury, who lived in the Day House in Wilton, and had a sort of salon, where artists like Revilius and Rex Whistler met with Paul Nash and Piper and I think um, Lord David Cecil. Everybody was anybody in the literary and artistic world, came to see her at some point. Now, when Robert Byron said, South Wiltshire is away with the fairies, it was a particular dig at her, because um, Edith Oliver was lent a car by Sigrid Sassoon, the war poet, in 1913, 
when she was um, in charge of the Women's Land Army. And driving near Avebury, the Stonehenge-type village that some of you will know, Edith said, well, I've never seen this before. I've heard about it. I'm going to drive into it, and drove in and saw a fair going on. And there was a banana boat, and she could hear people shooting at, a, at, at bottles, and there was a coconut shy, but it was raining, so she didn't get out, and she drove on. And a few days later, she drives back, and it's sunny, and so she stops and goes into a tea room and says, oh, I'm sorry, I missed that fair the other day. And the woman said, no, there was no fair here. And she said, well, I, I was here, and they, was, they were everywhere. These people were up and down. She said, we haven't had a fair here for 50 years. And she said, well, look, I, I drove down this avenue of stones. And they said, there isn't an avenue of stones. So she went away, and about, I think it, it was 34 or 5, she heard that Alexander Keeler was raising an avenue of stones. And she came along, and she said, look, I've driven down that. And he said, no, you haven't. And all of her friends said, no, don't, don't say it, don't say it, you just embarrass yourself. But she was quite determined that she'd driven down an avenue of stones that he later raised. So they were ribbing her. South Wiltshire is away with the fairies. Anyhow, Rex paints her house. This is him in his uniform. But like his brother-in-law, he too dies in action in Normandy. And his brother, who you may have heard of, his brother is a glass engraver, produced this wonderful little memorial in Alton Barnes, which was where Rex had wanted to settle in spirit country, wanted to be there. And so this little stained glass, it's not stained glass, it's a cut glass window about the size of a postcard in the church is all that remains to commemorate his visit there. Someone else who had an affinity with, with Jeffreys, rather surprising, was um, T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia. With the proceeds from his book, Seven Pillars of Wisdom, he bought Seven Barrows Hill, or what other people would sometimes call Overton Hill or Hackben Hill. It has a number of names. And um, after his death, he also bought... Uh, he wanted to preserve this area from any possible development. At the time, there was talk of building council houses there. And um, he, so he bought them both, and then he bequeathed them to the National Trust. This is a marvelous bit of countryside looking towards Overton Hill today. And that's the view from, Tan, from Waden Hill of... Remarkable monument, Silbury Hill, our British pyramid. John Piper was in the area quite a lot. Um, at Wooten, he made a discovery quite a lot. I mean, Piper had, in his library, had lots and lots of Jeffreys, and he particularly liked the unfussy, ungrand uh, approach to nature, that, the fact that you would... And, and, he, and he wrote his article, Pleasing Decay, really having had an epiphany that he preferred to to see things decrepit rather than restored. And that's a great feeling for all of us who are getting a bit decrepit, to know that our wrinkles might be beautiful. Um, Anyhow, this is some of what he found. I mean, he would often paint 
um, things that other people wouldn't give a second look at. Um, but he found beauty in them and a kind of romance. And he was also particularly fond of scarecrows or what he called tatty bogglers. He had a great collection of them, about 200. Wherever he found one, he would photograph it. And all of his friends were on orders to photograph anyone they found and send them to him. This is Piper taking time off as a war artist during wartime to come and paint Seven Barrows Hill from the then unrestored West Kennet Long Barrow in that classic style of his. Um, Piper used to tell a joke about himself was that he'd been commissioned by the Queen Mother um, and the King to paint the royal apartments in case they were all bombed, to paint Windsor and when he showed them to the king, they were all done in this characteristic style, this lowering sky, a lot of black, a lot of contrast. Very often he would use candle wax to, for texture on the rocks and things like that. He, great mixed media. Thing. And when, he, when the king saw these, um, these rather dark paintings, he said, well, you didn't have very good weather, did you, Mr. Piper? <laughs> Some of you will know from his church work, um, Coventry, um, Bristol, there's some fantastic um, stained glass in Bristol. And also from his, he, Piper was very interested in doing backdrops to operas. He did all of Ben Britton's. Ben was a great friend of his. And, and this was one, he, and he worked with the Wharton and the Sitwells. And this was one that they did during wartime based on Jeffrey's book, essay, The Earth, and the quote was, time is now no more, no more to us than the oak. We have no consciousness of it. Again, Jeffrey's theme, timelessness. Bill Brandt, who sp spoke with a heavy German accent and um, photographed, came to photograph Piper in 1944, was very keen on this as well, very keen on... His mother was, was English. Um, he found it difficult to get work when he came in here in 1939 at the start of the war because of his accent. But he gradually gravitated um, so that he photographed every artist and uh, musician he could find, but also wild places. And he had a project. He wanted to do something called Literary Britain. And he chose the authors, and he chose Richard Jeffries, and he came and photographed... This, which is a view very near where the Jeffreys Monument stands today. A view of some of those cops. This is a, the bank of an Iron Age hill fort. And some of those cops that Gilpin had recommended we plant as eye, eye catchers. Does anybody like Brant's work? This is rather good, isn't it? Now... I half hope you haven't heard of this woman because I think she's divine and then you have the joy of discovering her. Um, her name was Agnes Miller Parker and she was one of that class of woodcutters which we, we don't seem, to, we seem to have lost. There were a fabulous period in British publishing when woodcutting was going on, the Golden Cockerel Press, Wonder Gill, people like that. And she, and she came from Glasgow and worked in Glas Glasgow School of Art, but she had this affinity with Jeffreys and produced, I think, some of the most successful illustrations. It's not easy to illustrate Jeffreys, 
Um, and I'll show you why, but have a look at some of these. That moment in Bevis, when he talks, where, where he has himself, shows himself lying in the grass, he worried over that for years, because he had a kind of epiphany then. What he says later on in the story of my heart, which is his autobiography, is looking straight up at the stars, it was clear and evident that I was really riding among them. They were not above nor around, but I was in the midst of them. And he called this moment, he had nicknames for these moments, he called this Lyra because he saw the constellation Lyra, and he felt, like many of us who've ever used a telescope, that suddenly we're not just on the earth, we're in the middle of the bloody cosmos. Uh, There is this extraordinary feeling, and she's done it beautifully, hasn't she? This is another sequence that goes sequence of words that goes with this illustration. I went to drink at the stream. I lifted the water into the hollow of my hand. The sunlight gleamed on it as it slipped through my fingers. Thus I had the sun too in my palm. Thoughts without words, mobile like the stream, nothing compact that can be grasped or stayed. Dreams that slip silently as water slips through the fingers. This gives you, it's a long quote, but I'm, I'm going to go for it. I think it's a wonderful illustration. Each species of birds, bird has a manner of flight which can be distinguished at long distances. Some use their wings quickly as starlings, others slow with short pauses. Some rise and fall like the finches, but the rook strolls through the air with such disdain of labor that the air seems to spread his feathers for him. And they do. (laughs) That's the way they fly. Um, In, I think it was 1961, Faye Godwin, who later became chairman of the Ramblers and very famous British photographer, um, came to photograph the same copse. She came to do this, this book on the Ridgeway, and, Jeff, and, and she photographed the same cops that Brandt, Brandt had. And she went around. It's noticeable that wherever she photographed, she never included people. There was wildlife and cows and cattle and horses, but never people. Rather Jeffrey's, that one. And this she put together with this photograph, um, a quote from Jeff from um, Betjeman's Summoned by Bells. This was written by, by when Betjeman had left Marlborough College and cycled to Avebury and wrote, On a still moonlight night, Avebury seems peopled by ghosts, and the old church and cottages of the village seem new and insignificant. She collaborated, as some of you may know, with John Fowles, very successful collaboration, and he lent his... at the peak of his fame, really, he lent his name to a campaign to save Jeffrey's old house at Cote. As did a number of these people, some surprising, Spike Milligan. Spike Milligan came down and spent an awful lot of time tidying up the garden. And um, Johnny Morris, who was, from a boy, had been in love with this sort of anthropological, you know, the, the... you remember Johnny Morris, don't you? Yes. 
um, and um, his um, anthropomorphic way of dealing with animals. There's one Jeffrey's book, Wood Magic, in which all the animals speak. That was Morris's favorite book. Piper, we, we know about. Um, Henry Williamson, who also wrote a biography, a rather disturbing one in part, because I found that there's a passage where it's written in 1937, and there's a passage when Williamson says, um, of course, Jeffries had something in common with one of the other great men of our age who was brought up by a doting mother and had firm opinions on nature and painting, Adolf Hitler. I don't think he had anything in common with Hitler. <laughs> Anyhow, they managed to get, as well as thousands of others, contributed, and the Richard Jeffries Society was born, I believe, in 1950, and they managed to collate a lot of material, paintings that people had done of the area, inspired by Jeffries, um, wonderful little things like a brick that he'd written his initials, engraved his initials on, family photographs, a picture of that doting mother, a daguerreotype actually, rather, rather rare this is, which actually shows that if, in 1880 they were able to buy a daguerreotype. They were probably wealthier than the average farmer. Certainly J Richard didn't seem to have to work. And that's the rear view of the Coat Farmhouse today with a mulberry tree planted by his father, under which he wrote one of his few poems. He also wrote an extraordinary essay based on an experience there. Characteristically, what he would do is have an experience, make notes about it, and then write it up as an article maybe 30, 20 years later. And shortly before he died, he wrote something called Nature and Eternity, about sitting under that tree and watching an inchworm go up very, very slowly and watching all the wildlife, pretending he wasn't there, watching the wildlife come into the garden. And suddenly there is this explosion of goldfinches. Goldfinches, their wings never still, bills never idle, throats never silent, and tiny hearts within proud breasts beating so rapidly that reckoning time by change and variety an hour must be a day to each of them. This is a painting by David Inshaw, who I think was one of, some of you may know, is one of the Brotherhood of Ruralists with Peter Blake. Um, his work is on sale, certainly in Bath. I think it's the gallery. Um, begins with an R. What? Sorry? It's the gallery of Children. That's right. And... Um, David, um, I went to see him, and I said, I hope you don't mind me asking, because I don't think you're an illustrator. I think you're an artist. But do you think you were influenced by Richard Jefferies? And he leapt, and he said, do you know, I read him still. I used to take the story of my heart onto the downs by myself and read it. I have to call myself a romantic. He's my favorite writer. So I said, well, I'm doing this lecture on him. Would you let me have some pictures. And so he's let us have all these, um, a, a few, a selection. I think he's very much in the vein, or at least, at least he thinks he is. He said he'd be flattered to be mentioned in the same breath as Jeffries. This, incidentally, um, the Goldfinches is for sale as a print. The original is owned by Michael Palin. 
Um, this is set in a place called Pigley Den, near the Devil's Den, Pigley Dean. Almost surreal, but I think that there's a kind of stillness to them, a t- timelessness to them. Overton Hill again, or Seven Barrows Hill. In the last month of his life, his notebooks, he could, he could hardly walk, um, and he was suffering not only from TB, but from something which is almost unimaginable, an anal fistula, so he was rotting from the bottom up. And, um, but, and whilst taking a lot of medication, laudanum as well, he was writing all, every day, and he was still brooding on these experiences, those mystical experiences, and what he writes is, the esoteric meaning of everything seems to lie in the beyond, sun life, which is actually, sun life is what he actually wanted to call his autobiography, not the story, story of my heart, but an insurance company was called Sun Life. <laughs> sun Life, the sea, contemplation leads to the beyond. I shall never see the end, settle the infinite, but perhaps I may start a little band. Well, he died shortly afterwards. The last words in his notebook were, I dream of ideality. And I think um, the fact that you're here today and you've seen some of these artists were all part of the little band. This year, in the past five years, 18,000 people signed a petition to keep the old house, Jeffrey's house, open. Um, they've recently heard from Swindon Council that they're, they're not going to fund it anymore. And it's been vandalized quite a lot in the past few years. And the National Trust have declined to save it. They don't have money either. So our fervent hope is that there is a millionaire hiding in the audience with deep pockets who will ignore the credit crunch. Thanks very much for coming.